Chicken Little had a prophecy. You remember? Sure you do. She was eating her lunch one day and an acorn fell, hit her on the head, and she um, went into a panic, began to run around yelling, the sky is what? Falling. The sky is falling, and she headed out to warn uh, the king. This old fable is mistakenly attributed to Aesop's fables, but it actually originated in the Far East about 600 years before the birth of Christ. In the English version, dates centuries back, the chicken runs toward the palace. You remember gathering all sorts of animals along the way whom she convinces the sky is actually falling and they all get in a flutter and in a panic and, and all those animals um, have rhyming names. You remember names like Henny Penny and Turkey Lurkey and Goosey Lucy? We're going deep today. I just want you to know that. <laughs> and then who comes along but Foxy Loxy? You remember him? You remember he promises the animals safety but lures them into his trap and gobbles them up except for Chicken Little who escapes with her life. Now every version except, interestingly enough, the newest Disney movie version that actually reversed the moral of the story, the basic theme has always been don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe it. In past generations, I I found this out to be interesting. Uh, The story was even given a political makeover. Um, It was used, you know, the the silly chicken jumps to the wrong conclusion, inflames the masses who then are open to conniving foxes who lead them astray. What has survived through all of the centuries with this tale of Chicken Little, among other things, is the phrase we used to speak of some alarmist who predicts, you know, the the worst. Uh, They say the sky is falling, and, and we say that of them. We sort of mockingly refer to them. Yeah, those people think the sky is falling. In other words, don't believe the doomsayers. They're they're people running around like silly chickens. The sky is not falling. The sky will never fall. What's interesting to me is to observe in our generation that tune is changing. One author provoked my thinking when he wrote in his uh, little paperback, Hurtling Toward Oblivion, an interesting little book. Forty years ago, Hollywood's futuristic movies were all utopian. Life evolved into something perfect and peaceful. He went on to say, but today they are all apocalyptic. In other words, movies about the future now don't show the world getting better. The world in the future is now a place of wild creatures. Earth is either uninhabited or unlivable. The planet is either filled with danger or it's a barren wasteland. So it's not unusual anymore to hear somebody like philosopher Alfred Whitehead who said, it is the business of the future to be dangerous. Even Carl Sagan, the the astronomer and secular humanist whose television program was watched by a total of at least 600 million estimated, 
They were led to basically believe the universe is a living a being. In fact, his pseudoscience laid the groundwork for the rage today where people are told to communicate to the universe their wishes and the universe will respond with this law of attraction we've heard about recently. About 10 years ago, Carl Sagan died and met his maker. But he wrote in 1980 these words, We may have only a few decades until doomsday. Add to that George Walk, the chairman of the biology department at Harvard University and a Nobel Prize winner who said this not too long ago. And I quote him, Human life is threatened as never before in the history of this planet. Not by one peril but by many, and they are all working together, coming to a head at the same time. And I am one of those scientists who find it hard to see how the human race will survive much longer. And you know the interesting thing is nobody accuses these intelligent, educated scientists of being chicken littles anymore. The sky is going to fall. And the average person today believes it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a great opportunity to tell the truth. We can announce to our generation that that inner fear of the future, that sense of doomsday coming, the suspicion that earth and the human race cannot keep going on forever without encountering some kind of global apocalyptic terror, all of that is true. There is coming a day when the sky will begin to fall. Let me show you where it begins. Let's rejoin our study at the opening of the next seal, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The prophets often ridiculed and ignored for their prophecies of the coming judgment, spoke centuries ago with predictions of this coming day of wrath. Isaiah wrote these words. He wrote of a time when men will go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Isaiah 2, 21. Further, in chapter 13, Isaiah prophesied, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 13, 10. 
Hosea spoke of men one day begging the mountains to cover them and the hills to fall on them. Hosea 10, 8. The prophet Nahum said, and I quote him, Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Nahum 1, 5 to 6. One more, the prophet Zephaniah prophesied in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry. Who will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath? And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, even a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now you need to understand this phrase, the day of the Lord, is an expression used often to describe different periods of time when God intersects a group of people or a, or a nation of people or as in this final day of the Lord, the entire world with great judgment. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is not limited to future final wrath, but sometimes it refers to imminent historical judgments. Joel is the example of this. In chapter 2, he describes the universal day of the Lord, but earlier in chapter 1, he describes an actual locust plague that comes on uh, Judah, That act of judgment is intended by God to preview the day of the Lord, which is actually the Babylonian uh, captivity, which is then used to preview the day of the Lord, which is the final ultimate day of wrath discovered uh, later in chapter 2 of Joel, lived out here in Revelation in the tribulation. So this phrase, the day of the Lord, can be used for near events and yet illustrate even greater future events. The Old Testament used this phrase about 19 times, and the New Testament uh, used it about four times, broadening it even more. In fact, Paul told the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord would begin in the tribulation period, 2 Thessalonians 5, 2. The apostle Peter even used the phrase the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3, 10 to include the end of the millennial kingdom. That's a little longer than a thousand years. No wonder Peter addressed us in that same paragraph and he said, but remember one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It's going to fly by. By the way, now now you'll need to know this for the test. Any effort to limit the day of the Lord to the middle part of the tribulation and forward or to just the battle of Armageddon, as some believe, at the end of the millennial kingdom is simply not defensible with the prophets and the literal understanding of their words all the way up through the apostles. One thing is for sure. With the breaking of the first seal... And the first rider that rides out and the early days of the tribulation begin to unroll. Days that 
now you know will we'll include very soon war and murder and famine and pestilence, so much so that one-fourth of the world's population will die. Men and women will assume the end of the world is near. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ preached on this, and he said in Luke 21, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear. The word fainting literally means to breathe out, to stop breathing. In other words, when the day of the Lord is unrolled and all these things begin to unfold, people are literally going to drop dead from fear. And those who are left are going to try to end their lives out of terror for what will happen next. This is all the wrath of the Lamb. This is the awful beginning days of the day of the Lord. There are those that believe the rapture will occur here in chapter 6 of Revelation with the opening of the sixth seal because soon after is a trumpet call and there are those that believe this is the trumpet call of the rapture. That view is called pre-wrath, rapture. I get asked about it often and we'll deal with it later in detail as we look at these trumpets. There are actually seven of them. But for now, this particular paragraph alone ends that particular view because simply the rapture doesn't even rescue these people from the outpouring of wrath and terror. Furthermore, skip down to verse 17 of chapter 6 in Revelation and notice what humanity is saying. For the day of their wrath, that is the wrath of the Lamb, this has come. The day of their wrath has come. Come, The tense of that verb has come, an aorist indicative, which means these people are concluding the wrath of the Lamb, which has already begun to be poured out, not only in the sixth seal, but there in their minds with this aorist indicative are going all the way back to the beginning of the opening of the first seal. They are correctly assuming or concluding all of it is the wrath of the Lamb. So for those who believe you're going to be rescued from the wrath of the Lamb, we're way late if it happens here in chapter 6, verse 17. Now before I go any further, let me address a question which most believers might have in the larger church world, maybe even in here. Why do we even bother with this information? Why does God inform us of all the terror and fear and, and bloodshed and death and earthquakes is he trying to ruin a good night's sleep? Somebody might be tempted to ask, you know, what good does all this information do for me? It doesn't help me at work. It's not going to help me on Monday morning. It doesn't help me understand my, my third grader. Unless I redefine the word earthquake. You know, you should see his room. Well, listen, all this wrath and doom, some would say, doesn't help me understand my spouse or even give me some little nugget uh, to help me deal with my crabby boss on Monday morning, although he could use a little of God's wrath, I'm, I'm sure. Well, part of the reason that we think this is all kind of take it or leave it, and, and, uh, and I, for one, have never heard a sermon on the sixth seal, ever, or any seal, is that our attention, church-wide, like never before, is riveted on us. We are, we are consumed 
with us. We are focused on our lives. Now, we would expect the world to be focused on themselves. But in the church, like never before, most of the sermons, most of the stuff, most of the books are focused on overcoming the aches and pains of life and how to resolve everything from having had bad parents to solving bad health to living with bad credit. And here's the irony of it all. Our world is now admitting the stress of acute compounding guilt and a feeling of of a sense of dread about life now and and hopelessness about life in the the future. And, And the church at the same time is all absorbed about how to have your best life now. That is the title of a bestseller. And guess what? Instead of being like our forefathers who at least sounded a warning, like Jonathan Edwards who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, that would never sell today. It sparked a great awakening then. The church is absorbed with itself, missing the moment. See, there's more, ladies and gentlemen, there's more than raising third graders or getting out of debt. Don't misunderstand, those are good and noble duties. But there is a bigger picture to understand. In fact, understanding the larger purpose of God for planet Earth, which he evidently wanted us to know. The larger picture of human history actually deepens our passion for what we do. Understanding the coming terror gives us a greater desire than ever to not just raise civilized third graders, if that's even possible, but to lead them to the truth of the gospel of this righteous and soon coming king. But think of the irony before I leave it, this tragic irony at the very time in our generation when people are fairly convinced that doomsday is coming. That something bad is going to happen. That the human race needs rescuing from itself and an aging planet. We are determined as a church uh, never to talk about what? Doomsday. Wrath. Judgment. And we're missing the moment when we could say to a a receptive audience, listen, that thought that you have of, of coming trouble, that sense of doomsday coming for for the human race that movie you just watched about the end of civilization as we know it the basic idea is actually true in fact let me tell you why you don't want to be here when it happens there is a promise of rescue coming from the wrath to come first thessalonians 1 10 and and it is in believing in the lamb of god who can forgive your sin and and secure your future with him forever frankly studying the wrath of the lamb as a body of believers should deepen our gratitude for the grace of the lamb and cause us to more quickly more easily with deeper understanding, say, like we've sung, you are Lord. Now let's take a closer look at what happens as this sixth seal is broken and the scroll unrolls a little further. We'll call these five disturbances 
on earth you'd rather watch from heaven. Okay? The first disturbance in verse 12 is a great earthquake. Notice it there in verse 12. And there was a great earthquake. The original language calls this, in fact, the Greek language calls this a mega seismos. You recognize those words. We use mega to refer to something huge. This is a mega earthquake. The Greek word for earthquake is seismos. We've adopted that word today. Seismology is the science of studying earthquakes. So John is an eyewitness to a monster quake. Literally a shaking of the earth. The second disturbance is a a total eclipse of sun and, and moon. John records, and the sun became black as sackcloth, literally black as hair. This is a reference to the black goat hair worn by those in, in a funeral, mourning the loss of loved ones. It's as if he says the sun was covered with a sackcloth used in mourning the dead. The moon is eclipsed as well, and the description John writes. Uh, the color of the moon is like blood. It, 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 it fits perfectly with the deep reddish color uh, of, of the moon during an eclipse. The fact that these things bring terror to the planet. Some uh, well-respected uh, men believe that this is ash and debris spewing up, uh, covering, as it were, the, the, the moon. Um, I don't believe that would create any new sense of terror, which this does. An earthquake followed by darkness with a blood-red moon would. In 1989, in Nigeria, a, a solar eclipse brought rioting. As gangs burned and looted homes, trying in their, by their deeds to atone for the sins of infidels. Just two years ago, in that same country, a solar eclipse made many believe it was the conjuring of witches and wizards. Many Hindus of India, I have learned, are busy before a solar eclipse placing leaves on food items to ward off demonic rays, they believe. Uh, Expecting mothers are kept indoors and and, uh, afraid to scratch themselves at any time during an eclipse, believing that if they do that, their newborn will be born with scars. One Indian newspaper advised expectant mothers not to go outside during the eclipse to avoid having a blind baby. The Hindustan Times reported those who are holding a knife or axe during the eclipse will not be able to keep from cutting themselves. Many will take to holy rivers afterward to cleanse themselves from the effects of an eclipse. You say these people are are ignorant of basic astronomy. Not so, says the Times of India. I pulled this article up and read it. One article interviewed a 32-year-old computer executive who said she believed... During an eclipse, the number of germs increases. Therefore, no food is eaten or cooked during an eclipse. And any food cooked before the eclipse is thrown away, which is what much of that country does. In other words, billions of pounds of edible food is literally thrown away after an eclipse, believing it is contaminated. A lunar eclipse 
has been believed by millions, especially in the Far East, to be the gobbling up of the moon by some cosmic beast, and the creeping red color is the blood of the moon spreading across its face. Now, certainly, the the civilized, sophisticated world can explain lunar and solar eclipses. In fact, in my research, I watched the video of, of a total eclipse. It was fascinating. But no one can explain, no one can explain them happening at the same time accompanying by the shaking of the planet. And for all of humanity, it will be terrifying. There's more to come. The third disturbance is the stars, verse 13, of the sky which fall to earth like a fig tree casts its figs. When shaken by a great wind. The word for stars, astair, refers to any luminous body in the sky other than the sun and moon. The stars here are what we would call shooting stars. These are meteors or asteroids that literally pummel the earth. On November 13, 1833, eyewitnesses testified that hundreds of shooting stars could be seen simultaneously and people actually fell to their knees begging God for mercy. NASA scientist Don Humans, who manages the Near-Earth Asteroid Tracking Program, yes, there is one out there, and they've identified a couple thousand potential asteroid impacts. He said, and I quote, the probability of an asteroid impacting Earth is low, but it is also a high-consequence event. Don't you love the way scientists talk? A high-consequence event. The last major asteroid to cause damage by colliding with Earth occurred in a sparsely populated region of Siberia in 1908, and its impact literally toppled 700 square miles of forest. Now think about that. The city of Raleigh and Cary combined is about 130 square miles. The impact of one asteroid leveled 700 square miles of whatever was standing. I thought it was humorous as I researched this to read one scientist who works for a research laboratory in California. He concluded, and I quote him, the most sensible thing to do about Earth-striking asteroids is to try and not think about it. (laughs) Just don't think about it. In my research, I saw an illustration of what an asteroid collision would look like. Stunning, terrifying. At the same time, it's literally a ball of fire that comes hurtling through the atmosphere, striking the earth with the power of a nuclear bomb. Now imagine this scene. The earth is shaking. And then the sky goes black. The moon appears red, blood-like color, and then through the black sky, you see screaming toward earth fireballs the size of boats. And all you can see through the darkness is what appears to be stars, fireballs scorching toward our planet. And you hear the collisions You see the bursts of flame. You feel the rush of 
hot air from some nearby impact and trees are bursting uh, into flame along with homes and and, and skyscrapers alike and and people can only think of one thing. The sky is falling. It is the end of the world. The fourth disturbance in verse 14 is the atmosphere. It tells us it splits apart, it rolls back in two opposite directions. I think the vocabulary is impossible to describe what John saw, but it's like the atmosphere high above the planet is is shriveling up, peeling away in this fiery ordeal. The fifth disturbance in verse 14 is the change in geography. He writes in verse 14, the mountains and islands were moved out of their Places The planet is still shaking. The sky is still dark. The earth is pummeled with fireballs. The size of buses are exploding on the earth. And everything is in so much upheaval that mountains shift and islands disappear out of sight. The earth's crust shifts and moves. And the devastating natural disasters accompanying the sixth seal that John doesn't even mention. Hurricanes that are caused by this tsunamis that sweep Inland, drowning untold numbers of people, the most terrifying yet, the devastation is absolutely unbelievable. And just who is affected by these disturbances? John gives us the six categories of people impacted by the sixth seal. First, he mentions in verse 15 look quickly, the kings of the earth. These are the heads of state, the rulers, the presidents. The prime ministers of the nations of the earth. And at this moment they will recognize their power is powerless. John mentions next the great men. These are high ranking officials. Senators. Senior ranking officials from all walks of life. John mentions next commanders. They're they're caught up in the panic with everybody else. The word for commander here is the same word used elsewhere for a Roman officer who commanded a thousand soldiers. These are the unflappable generals experienced in battle with amazing composure under fire like General Douglas MacArthur whose biography I finished not too long ago who would go out on a hill near his bunker and watch as the Japanese planes would come into fire on the troops and there he would stand unmoved, unafraid. People were amazed. At one point in his biography, General Patton, a crusty general, visited him as a bombing raid was taking place and they were standing out in the open as, as the planes dipped low to strafe uh, the, the troops and the ground and Patton wondered if MacArthur would even blink as the bombs fell around them. And finally, one particular bomb came screaming through the air and landed very close to where they were and Patton winced, to which MacArthur winked and chided Patton by saying, now General, you never hear the one that hits you. He was legendary among his troops for standing as close to the enemy lines as he could without ever crouching down. That's the kind of man here. Commanders, battle-worn, field-tested, 
five-starred metal-decorated warriors, and now they, along with everybody else, are cowering in caves, crying like babies. Fourth, John mentions in this text the rich. He uses the words from which we get the phrase the, the hoi polloi. It's the Greek words used. The rich and famous. Oh, the hoi polloi. None of their wealth can buy them safety. Their money is worthless on a planet where everything seems to be on fire. Fifth, John mentions the strong. It's a reference to um, influential people. You could call them mighty. These are the movers and the shakers of the planet. But now they see the planet is being moved and shaken by an unseen hand. And finally, John wraps it up in verse 15 by just including everybody else in this phrase, every slave and free man. This is a reference to all classes of people, free and enslaved, free and imprisoned. This is the way to say, and everybody else. That's what he means. Nobody's left out. Everyone is without relief. In other words, from kings to common laborers, they are all now running to try to to find safety somewhere, anywhere, screaming, crying, literally out of their minds as we can only imagine, and many of them dropping dead with heart attacks from the sheer terror of it all. Unbelievable scene. We don't know how long it lasts But what happens next is utterly amazing to me. The last part of verse verse 15, and they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. In other words, all these terrifying events spark the biggest prayer meeting the world has ever Seen. This is a universal call to prayer, and all of humanity is praying. But you notice they're not praying to God. They are praying to objects of nature. They are praying, as it were, to Mother Nature and not to the God of creation. Here they are, an unbelievable rebellion like Pharaoh of old. They refuse to submit to the terrors of these plagues and they harden their hearts. And you notice they they cry out, fall on us. Don't miss it. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They know God is behind these terrors. One author said it this way, they they reject the rock of ages and pray to the rocks. They pray to be hidden from the face of God. They pray to die rather than face God. They would rather hide from God in fear than run to God in faith. They are tragically wrong. They think that death will bring them an escape. It won't, for it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the what? The judgment, Hebrews 9.27, but you imagine this scene, they've seen enough. It implies, by the way, they even have access and understanding of the word of God. I think this book is going to be read an awful lot during the tribulation. 
See, they're seeing it unfold. And they have now correctly concluded the wrath of the Lamb began three and a half years earlier. God is behind this. The Lamb that they've come to understand through the pages of this book is behind this. But they would rather die than trust him. This is where I believe... By the way, God judicially abandons them, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 of of the second letter, that, that these will be those who will be sent a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie of the Antichrist. Now, almost finished. The dust settles. The earth settles back down. The fires are put out. We will discover the Antichrist will move in Jerusalem to desecrate the altar of the newly constructed temple, probably damaged as well, and claim to be God. See, this is the perfect opportunity to say, the God of the Jews is behind this. Look what he's done to you. I'm actually God, and I will lead you in a different way. Follow me. Great opportunity, which he will... Sees. And it won't be long, hence, the beast will take over the planet and begin even greater times of bloodshed and horror. Let me ask you, my friend, are you ready to be rescued from all of this? If you know the Lamb, the wrath of God has already been released against him, and you, by faith in him, will not feel the wrath of God ever. If you do not know the Lamb, listen, you may come back here next Sunday and find only a handful of people here wandering around the campus, wondering where everybody is. I beg you to believe in the Lamb today. You say, well, I don't like your preaching. Last time I'm coming back here, I get up on Sunday morning, get all dressed and pretty. and You preach judgment. You're no fun. I thought it was interesting when the Surgeon General of the United States first issued dire warnings. I thought this was interesting, that smoking increased the possibilities of cancer. You remember that when that happened? I think I was a teenager when that occurred. You remember that? He was not a very popular man, but he saved lives. I read about a man who was so concerned from the newspaper articles about the dangers of smoking that he decided to give up the newspaper. <laughs> Listen, you can call me Chicken Little if, you, if it'll make you feel better, okay? But it won't change the message. The sky will one day begin to fall, but there is a way out. There is a way up. Amen? Father, thank you for the promise of your word. And for those who are in the Lamb, will be rescued from the wrath to come. And because you live, we can face tomorrow. Because you live, all fear is gone. Because we know who holds the future. Life is worth living just because you live. And everyone said... Amen. Amen.